Hello and welcome to Everyone Special and No One Is, a podcast about obscure, misunderstood, and or controversial topics related to music. My name is Martin and I am super excited for today's episode because we're going to be getting into questions like, how many monthly listeners do you need to have as an artist on Spotify in order to get an income of at least $50,000 a year or more on your streams? And what is the 10,000 hour rule for practicing musical instruments? Is it true? Does it hold up? And there's so much more that we're going to be getting into today. I did a lot of research. I have some cold, hard facts that I'm very excited to share. But first, I just want to share a little story from my childhood. I promise this will relate back to the main topic eventually. So back when I was a kid, my family used to go on these annual camping trips up to northern Minnesota to an area called the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. It's where just like at the northern part of Minnesota where it almost borders with Canada there's all these lakes and they're all interconnected so you can put all your stuff in a canoe paddle for a bit and then get out of the canoe and do what's called a portage you're just walking across a short span of land and then you're in another lake and then you can canoe a little bit further maybe go to some other lakes eventually you'll set up your tent and camp for the night really fun thing to do a really great family bonding experience and it's something that we got to do every year and it's a really really uh really good memory of mine so one year in 2008 I was 10 years old at the time. We went with just me, my brother, my mom, and then she also brought along her friend and her friend's family. It was like him, his son, and I don't know if he had two sons or if it was like his son and his son's friend. But anyway, there were these two other guys on the trip that were probably like 15 or 16, so like five to six years older than me. And they brought along with them video cameras because they were working on a video project. Bear in mind, this is 2008. The idea that you can just have a portable video camera that you can just take with you into the forest is still a fairly new thing. And for me as a 10-year-old, I was super amazed that they were working on this project and that they were going to post it on a place called the internet. And They were doing this sort of trick where they were doing certain motions backwards and then they were going to reverse them when they got home and edited the video. So for instance, there are places in the Boundary Waters where you can go cliff jumping. So they would jump off the cliff into the water. One guy would stay on the top of the cliff filming them. And so then later when they would reverse it back, it would look like they were basically emerging from the water below and then like skyrocketing up to the top of the cliff in reverse which i mean nowadays that that sort of a thing doesn't sound very technologically advanced but for me as a 10 year old in the year 2008 it absolutely blew my mind and at one point in the trip they even asked me and my younger brother if we wanted to be in this video that they were working on and that was so cool to me i was like whoa i'm going to be in a video that these older teenagers are going to put together and then upload to the world wide web whoa that's amazing i'm going to be famous That was like my mindset at the time because just the idea that 
anyone theoretically with an internet connection could potentially see me in this video. It was the most amazing thing. Just to put things into context, in 2008, the iPhone had only been around for about a year, YouTube had only been around for about three years, and not a single channel on YouTube had at that point surpassed a million subscribers. Everything was under that at that point, and the most popular channel was, of course, Smosh. Now, for the first time with the advent of YouTube and video sharing on the internet, we were able to see this idea that anyone with a video camera is able to put up content on the internet where it can potentially have worldwide distribution. That is not something that existed before the internet. All of the entertainment industry was gatekept by these big, large corporations, TV studios, film studios, etc., and in order to make something, whether it's a music or television thing, like you absolutely had to go through those channels if anyone was going to have any chance of seeing it. But now with YouTube, it was like this explosion of content and one gem from 2008, one viral video that was just made by a dude with a flash animation program was Charlie the Unicorn. You have to take the amulet to the Banana King. Oh, yes, the Banana King, of course. Absolutely not. He, he's counting on us, Charlie. If we don't get the amulet to the Banana King, the vortex will open and let out a thousand years of darkness. No, darkness. The original Charlie the Unicorn video was just four minutes long, and it was released on an animation sharing website called Newgrounds. Later in 2006 or 2007, it was re-uploaded to YouTube, where it gained massive popularity, tens of millions of views and it spawned several spin-offs the the audio clip that you just heard me play in the podcast was from Charlie the Unicorn number 2 there are 5 parts in total the fifth part was actually a 40 minute animation special which because it was such longer of an episode the creator made a kickstarter to fund it having a $35,000 goal and ultimately earned $209,000, way surpassing the initial estimate. Um, it just goes to show the massive popularity of these early viral videos and the enduring success that they had as a result. And this sort of story of just someone who comes from nothing, basically putting a video on the internet and it just taking off organically, just because people want to share it with their friends and family. And they're like, hey, check this out. This is insane. That sort of thing is the essential basis of the idea that the internet basically creates a true meritocracy where there are no gatekeepers. The only thing that causes a video or a song or an artist to get popular is because people think it's great and so then they reshare it and reshare it and it grows exponentially from there. So it's not about does this industry gatekeeper think it's good, it's does Everyone, all of the, the people in the public think this is a good entertaining thing and then they share it and then that's how success happens, right? So in theory, the internet is this really beautiful way where anyone has a shot at being successful. 
And that's what was so alluring to me as a 10-year-old when I was going camping. And these teenagers that were, I think, the sons of my mom's friend were putting me in this video that was going to go on the internet. I was just so youthfully innocent. I was like, wow, this, this could be a really big thing, not really at the time understanding what that really meant. And of course... The reality in this situation is that nothing really happened with the video. To be honest, I don't know if they even finished it, and I don't think I ever saw the final product if they did. Which, honestly, is too bad, because I would love to see that. But the, the bigger point here is that around that time, in the mid to late 2000s, there was starting to be this thing where musicians would become popular on the internet, and then they would get a major record deal as a result of that, as opposed to the traditional model of record executives going around to shows, hearing different bands in person, and then potentially getting in contact with them. But now with the internet, it's like, oh, anyone who has potentially thousands or millions of views already, it's like they already have a proven following, so it's already more of a guarantee that they could potentially be successful from a record executive standpoint. One of these early musicians that got signed from the internet was Justin Bieber. And just for fun, I'm going to play you a brief clip of one of the earliest interviews with Justin Bieber in 2008 on the Canadian news network eTalk. How many times have people viewed your videos? Like, I've I heard 1.5 million times. Is that true? That's just on one video. My newest video with you. Really? So, yeah. So what is it like having all these people, like, go to the internet and, like, check you out? They're, like, looking for you. Like, how does it feel? It's, it's kind of weird because I'm just, like, a normal person. I, I play sports and stuff with my friends. And yeah. I don't know. I just, it's kind of different for me. Yeah. So. What do your schoolmates think about this? What do they say? Sometimes they're like, wow, that's really cool. But sometimes I don't tell them because I just want I just want to be a regular kid. I love that clip so much, not just because of how sweet and innocent Justin Bieber is, but because of the way he has to politely correct the interviewer when he's like, oh, what? So you've got like a million views and Justin Bieber's like, no, actually, that's just one video. But he he does the correction in the sweetest way. And the way the interviewer says, so how do you feel about when people go on the internet and look you up? And the way he says internet almost connotes this like capital I internet when it was it was still such a new thing. I don't know. Um, It's just very charming to me. Just to be clear, I am aware that in 2008, the internet was obviously not brand new. It had already been around for multiple decades at that point. But what I'm saying is that the accessibility of so many more people having personal computers and home video technology and being able to record and release their videos online... Uh, That was a very, very new upcoming thing around 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008. So the reason why I'm talking about all these examples is just because it shows that my generation, we grew up at a time when this was all starting and we got familiar with the idea that, oh yeah, you can just upload a video of yourself and millions of people can see it. Like that was very much ingrained in my generation from a young age. So fast forward to the present 
And let's now shift the focus to Spotify streaming statistics. How many artists on Spotify are getting lots and lots of streams? If it's true that we're living in a true meritocracy because of the internet, then hopefully there should be many, many, many artists that are massively popular. And on one hand, there are, but it's also very complex. And the only way we can really get into it is to look at the actual data behind it. And fortunately, in 2021, Spotify actually made this data available widely to the public. And I'm going to let the YouTuber named WordplayTJ tell you about it. Today, I'm going to be talking about Spotify's Loud and Clear. It was an opportunity for them to um, go ahead and provide some transparency and some clarity about music economics. And um, I felt like it, it, it did clear some things up for me. So if you go to Google and type in Spotify loud and clear, it should be one of the first results that pops up. Basically, it's a page where Spotify is giving a ton of data and statistics about songs and artists on its platform. There's like a whole explanation of how publishing royalties works. There's a frequently asked questions list. But the thing that I find the most interesting is that Spotify will tell you how many artists earn certain amounts of streams or monthly listeners or income. So, for instance, you can go in and just type in 1 billion streams, and then the website will pop out a number for you how many songs have over 1 billion streams. So I did this, and the answer, wait for it, is 1,000 songs. So approximately 1,000 songs have a billion streams or more on Spotify. Now, you have to keep in mind, this is as of a snapshot of Spotify data that was taken in March of 2022, but it was based on 2021 streaming data. So uh, they have not updated it with 2022 numbers yet. I mean, we haven't finished the year, so probably they will update the website again um, early next year with 2022 information. So you have to take it with a grain of salt because these numbers are potentially a year old. But still, I think it's really interesting. So 1,000 songs with over a billion streams. That is actually remarkable considering that we were just listening to a clip of a Justin Bieber interview where it seemed so amazing that he had over a million streams just on one video. But now we're talking about many, many artists getting into the billions of streams just on one app, just on Spotify, you know. But we have to think about, well, that's just like the most successful, like the 1% of the 1% of artists that are reaching these massive, massive levels of popularity. So what can we find out on this website about artists that are getting, let's say, under a thousand streams on each of their songs? So you can actually go into the website, plug in a thousand, and then Spotify will tell you how many songs have over a thousand streams. So I was able to do the math based on the total number of songs on Spotify at the time, which was 78.4 million songs, and calculated that there are basically 47.7 million songs on Spotify with under a thousand streams. That is 60% 
overall, meaning that more than half of songs on Spotify have under a thousand streams. I mean, if we're going to translate that into money, that means that most songs on Spotify aren't earning anything of significant value because, of course, you're getting fractions of a penny per stream on the platform. So if you get like 500 to 1,000 streams, you're still just getting maybe a couple of cents at most, you know? I mean, another interesting statistic is based on monthly listeners. And so for those of you that may not be Spotify listeners... Spotify, for each artist, they show the number of monthly listeners that artist has, which Spotify defines as unique listeners who play your music during a 28-day period. And this just gives a general feel for the number of active listeners an artist has, meaning that if you were massively popular at one time, but are not anymore, you're going to have your monthly listeners shows how many people are listening to your music today. So you still could theoretically have a song with a million streams, but only have like 20,000 monthly listeners, basically. Uh, So Music Business Worldwide put out an article based on the Spotify loud and clear data, and they found that when they ran the numbers, 78% of artists on Spotify have fewer than 50 monthly listeners, meaning that over three-fourths of all the artists on Spotify have less than 50 people listening to their music each month. Let's just let that sink in for a minute. So already it's pretty clear that the vast majority of artists that release music on Spotify are not making any significant income on their streams. But aside from the number of monthly listeners and the number of streams, it does actually give real data on how much money certain amounts of artists are making on the platform. For instance, if you want to earn at least $50,000 or more on Spotify through your publishing and recorded royalties when people listen to your music, $50,000 corresponds to roughly 450,000 monthly listeners, meaning that unless you have about 450,000 monthly listeners, you're probably going to earn less than $50,000. But how many people are able to get up to that point anyway? How many artists are able to break $50,000 in their Spotify earnings? And to answer this, I'm going to turn it back over to the YouTuber we heard from earlier, Wordplay TJ. I feel like the 50K mark is a is a great marker to understand what people need to live uh, in the United States. And so overall, I feel like 50K would be a comfortable living in most places around the United States. That's if you don't have kids, that's if you don't have any extra obligations and you're just kind of living in a, in a box in most cases. So the number of people making at least 50K from their royalties based off of last year's number, is uh, 13,000 people. So, yeah, 13,000. That's not bad. That video was put out back a year ago when Spotify only had 2020 data to work with, but now that they've added 2021 data, they see that the number of artists that are earning $50,000 or more on their combined publishing and recorded royalties from their streams, it has now gone up from 13000 to 16500 which 
actually feels like a lot. I mean, if you had 16,500 people working at a company getting $50,000 and up for their salaries, like that's not bad. We're actually talking about a significant number of people here. But we have to put this in context. So around the time this data was collected, there were 8 million artists on Spotify, meaning that that 16,500 is only 0.2% of the overall number of artists on Spotify as of 2021. 0.2% of artists are earning a living wage on their publishing and recorded royalties. That that feels a lot different to look at it that way. <laughs> that means that 99.8% of artists are probably not earning enough money from Spotify to pay for their food and rent and other expenses. Now, of course, Spotify, for any artist, is probably not their only source of income. There are other streaming services, and there's also live performance, sponsorships, etc., etc. There's so many different revenue streams that may contribute to an artist's bottom line. But the fascinating thing here is that the vast majority of artists, Spotify alone is not enough income to really get by. And as I've said, a lot of people in my generation that grew up with this new phenomenon of a viral video or a viral song, we have this sort of optimism that if we put something on the internet, on Spotify, it could potentially take off and it could potentially get millions of streams and lead to more opportunities down the road. And that even looking at numbers like this that feel really discouraging, it's like we we want to be in that upper 0.2%. And we think that we're going to get there if we just have the right opportunities, get in the right playlists, have the right person produce our song, which causes us to spend sometimes hundreds or thousands of dollars of getting our song produced and also dropping loads of money when these services come up that promise to promote our music. Are you tired of your music not getting the exposure and recognition it deserves? Are you fed up with your audience being unable to discover your tracks on streaming platforms? Are you sick of seeing your new releases flop while other artists blow up with ease? Well, we've got something exciting for you. Now, only for a limited time, Music Vertising is helping up-and-coming artists get their tracks submitted to 100-plus Spotify playlist curators 100% free of charge. What you just heard is an ad that popped up on YouTube. I was doing some searching for videos on how to get more streams in my preparation for this podcast episode. And that ad or other ads for that same service popped up so many times across so many different videos with people talking about Spotify streams because they want to capitalize on this idea that so many musicians are thirsty for getting more activity on their music. And if they promise a quick and easy solution, then a lot of musicians are going to jump at it. Now, just to be clear, I did not use the service that came up in that advertisement that I just played, but I have one time paid to promote my music through a service called SubmitHub. What SubmitHub will do, you just go into their website, you sign up for an account, and then you pay per pitch. So basically, you get these credits, and each credit is good for making sure that your music is heard by a blogger, a social media influencer, or a playlist curator with the idea that 
if these people are exposed to your music and promise to listen to at least 20 seconds of it, then there's a chance that they might put it on their playlist or share it on their social media. Um, so just listen to all of these people talking about the wonders of SubmitHub. In this video, I'm going to show you a bunch of things you can do to triple or even quadruple your chances of being accepted by a curator on SubmitHub. What up, what up, world? It's your homeboy, Wordplay TJ, and I'm back with another video for you. This time around, I sit down with the founder of SubmitHub to get you better results. So if you're using SubmitHub and you're not getting the results that you want, I've got some tips for you to help improve your chances dramatically. Hola, ¿qué tal, chicos? ¿Cómo están? Lo que voy a hacer es tratar de promocionar mi canción a través de una plataforma que se llama Submit, SubmitHub. SubmitHub. So the idea is that by paying SubmitHub these credits so that different influencers and playlist curators will listen to your music, you will increase your chances of getting in these playlists, which will then snowball into more success for your music as these popular playlists generate lots more streams for your song, which is a little bit dicey because actually, according to Spotify's platform rules, no one is allowed to put music in a playlist in exchange for money. They want to discourage this thing where these influential playlists that have maybe hundreds of thousands or millions of followers, they don't want those people to monetize their following by taking advantage of artists and making them pay them in order to put their song in that playlist. So that's not allowed. And if you try to do that, Spotify may take down your playlist. But the way that SubmitHub gets around that is that technically, when users sign up for SubmitHub and pay for these credits, SubmitHub only guarantees that the playlist curators will listen to at least 20 seconds of your song. They're not guaranteeing that you will be put in a playlist, and probably the majority of songs that get pitched do not end up in playlists at all. So it's like, hypothetically, you might end up in a playlist, but... You might not, and therefore, because ultimately the decision of whether to put a song in a playlist is made by the curator, technically that's not pay for play, I guess. <laughs> to me, that seems like kind of not the best justification of it, but that's just me. Um, so when I used SubmitHub, I actually did this with one of my co-writers in the past. We both split the cost of paying for 10 credits, meaning that we got 10 pitches to different bloggers and playlisters and actually we successfully made it into two playlists so two out of ten were successful which is not that bad of a success rate however the playlists we got in were fairly small and i got the feeling that those playlisters basically were just making money on submit hub and similar services and that they didn't have that much of like a true genuine following of the people who just wanted to listen to their playlist like it was mostly just a self-contained ecosystem of artists trying to promote their music, trying to get on these playlists, but it didn't really extend much beyond that into the general listening public, meaning people that aren't musicians. So still, that song has under a thousand plays to this day, even though it did get put into curated playlists, which, you know, not all playlists are equal, and there may be some playlists that do have a large, um, genuine following, but... It's just the ecosystem of SubmitHub seems to me to be just filled with all of this 
toxic competition and just desperation of musicians that just want to get popular and are struggling to do so. And that is not something that I want to participate in in the future. What this feels like to me is a story that my mom told me as a kid. She was telling me about the gold rush, how there were so many people flocking to California because rumors were that there was gold out there and that you could strike it rich if you just went to the right mine and found gold, and then your life would be infinitely better once you got this gold. But the thing is that most people who ended going looking for gold came back empty-handed and worse off than they were before. But the people that actually got rich and reliably got rich off of that whole situation, they were the people who set up shop outside the gold mine selling supplies and tools and food and resources for the gold miners. So rather than the people who wanted to get the gold, it was the people who took advantage of them in order to make money. So that's kind of what services like Submit Hub feel like to me. It's these people who are capitalizing on the hope and desperation of all of these musicians. It just feels like a really ugly system to me. But of course, there's plenty of ways to promote your music that doesn't involve pitching to random strangers in the internet. Like, what about actually going out playing shows, building an audience one fan at a time, creating a social media page where you put engaging content on there. Like, There's so many better ways to go about promoting yourself as a musician. And I'll be getting into some of those strategies a bit more in part two of this, We Are the 99%. But first, I just want to ask a question like, in the age of the internet where anyone can theoretically get a worldwide audience, how come some musicians still are in this under 1,000 category, and others are getting thousands, tens of thousands, millions of streams on their songs. Like, what is it that sets apart the indie musician who's not very popular from the more successful musicians? And that's a really big question, and there aren't any easy answers to that, but I think it's helpful to zoom out a bit and talk about what is the foundation of success in general? So last weekend, I read a book called Outliers, written by journalist Malcolm Gladwell. And he goes into all these different sorts of ways that people have become successful, getting into really specific stories, but also zooming out and looking at the broader picture from a more societal lens of the circumstances that create success. And in a video called Malcolm Gladwell Answers Research Questions from Twitter from Wired, he gives just the basic summary of his view on success expressed in his book. I tried to answer this question in my book, Outliers. And my answer was it's, a, it's, it's impossible to boil it down to one thing. What we do know is that your IQ is probably a smaller, plays a smaller role than you think. And your own efforts play a smaller role than you think. It's probably more to do with luck and good fortune and having people around you help you. Those are probably the things that make the biggest difference. I first found out about this book way back in high school when I was taking a class on the music business. And my teacher brought up this book and brought up an example from the book of the Beatles. The Beatles were obviously one of the greatest bands of all time. 
And in the book Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell writes about how early on in their career, they had the opportunity to play at a club in Hamburg, Germany, and they played eight hour long gigs for like six to seven days a week, which means that in the span of a short amount of time, they got an insane amount of live performance experience, way more than anyone, any other band's in the same era, in the same time would have had, and that Malcolm Gladwell's arguing that that experience, that rigorous practice all at once, is what really turned them from a good band into a great band, and is basically an example of an opportunity that is maybe a lucky break, which then has ramifications outside of your control that can lead to success. And when my teacher in the class was talking about this, I was thinking in my head, like, I don't want to read this book. This is not something that I want to put my mind into because at at the time, as a high school student, I was like, success is only personal effort. It has nothing to do with your environment or your circumstances. If you want to be successful, all you have to do is decide that you want to do it and then figure out how to do it. Basically, put in the effort and you will achieve success. And this idea that there's a book all about how successful people pretty much just got lucky in life, (laughs) I didn't want to read that. I disagreed with that wholeheartedly. But then what changed is that going to college, being immersed around so many different musicians who are trying to do the exact same thing, and seeing that some of us have some opportunities that other people didn't, um, it's just, it's, it's a fact of life that there are things that will happen, some in your favor and some not in your favor, which are outside of your control. So this idea that Successful people, while they definitely work really, really hard, there are also other people that may work just as hard who may not be successful. And unfortunately, that's just kind of a fact of life. So I had been resisting reading the book Outliers for a very long time, but I finally picked it up and read it last weekend in preparation for this podcast. And it did help to evolve my view on success. I wouldn't say I'm totally pessimistic and cynical as a result of reading it, but at the same time, it was a sobering read because it does show all these people that we put on a pedestal, like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, and it's like, oh, well, actually, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs were both born at the perfect time to take advantage of early computer technology, and they got early access to those computers, which is how they got so much skill and experience, which most other people their age at that time didn't have access to early computers, so they weren't able to work on it and understand computers in the same way that Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Bill Joy, other early computer entrepreneurs. And they were kind of like a product of their time. As much as they were self-made entrepreneurs, they were still wholly influenced by external factors. And Malcolm Gladwell goes through so many other examples like that in the book. He talks about hockey players in Canada, which theoretically hockey would be a perfect meritocracy where everyone is awarded just on the basis of skill and nothing else comes into play. But then like you look at hockey players and they're mostly born in January. 
February, March, and then much less in the later months of the year. And the reason for that was basically because they were selecting hockey players at a young age who demonstrated the ability to do better than their peers based on an age cutoff at the beginning of January. So just because basically of the luck of when they were born, certain hockey players who were already older by the time the age cutoff rolled around, they were just they were older, so they had more physical ability than their peers, and so they were disproportionately selected and then given more time, put in the advanced teams, given more work, and that's why when they got to a later age, they were already so much better than their peers. But initially, it was kind of just arbitrary based on when they were born, and it wasn't intended to be that way, like totally accidental, but just like a flaw in the system of how the hockey players were being selected. So So yeah, so Outliers is all about all these examples in which external circumstances and the society around you influences whether or not you are successful. So reading it, it's kind of like, wow, there is so much that's out of my control that's happening. But the one thing that is sort of optimistic about the book or could potentially be viewed as optimistic is Malcolm Gladwell talks about this 10,000 hour rule for success. Um, And this is something that is maybe even more widely known than the book Outliers. Like for instance, I was talking with my roommate about that I was reading this book and I mentioned it to him and he, he had never heard of Outliers, but I was like, well, have you heard of the 10,000 hour rule where like in order to master something you need to spend 10,000 hours doing it and he was like yeah I've heard of that and I was like well (laughs) that came from outliers Malcolm Gladwell was the one who really popularized this idea that based on certain studies that have shown that 10,000 hours is a rule of thumb for how much time you need to do something in order to be successful. And here is an interview clip from Malcolm Gladwell on CNN talking about the 10,000-hour rule. I'm not sure, but I think this interview was shortly after the release of his book. And you talk about the 10,000-hour the rule, that, that, that it's not just a matter of, well, this person's a genius, this person has an amazing ability. It, it is actual practice and hard work. You know, so a bunch, a group of really brilliant psychologists in the, in the field of expertise research have sat down and tried to figure out how long do you have to work at something before you become really good, right? And the answer seems to be, it's an extraordinarily consistent answer in an incredible number of fields, and that is you need to have practiced to have apprenticed for 10,000 hours before you get good. So every great classical composer, without exception, composes for at least 10 years before they write their masterwork. Mozart, 10. Mozart is is composing at 11, but he's composing garbage at 11. I mean, he doesn't produce something great until he's 22 or 23. So in the book, Malcolm Gladwell cites a study of violinists at a prestigious music school in Berlin. Basically, they took violinists, separated them by skill level, and then asked each violinist to calculate, to estimate the number of hours that they had practiced up until that point. 
And what the study found was that the most skilled violinists had already practiced for 10,000 hours, and the ones that were not as skilled had practiced for more like, I don't know, 5,000 or 6,000 hours. But it really took 10,000 hours to work up until that point. And then Malcolm Gladwell also estimates that through all that time the Beatles were playing at that club in Hamburg, Germany, they would have ultimately made up to 10,000 hours. Bill Gates probably had over, well over 10,000 hours working on computers before he, you know, founded Microsoft and became super successful, super rich. So just to put this into context, if you were doing something like practicing an instrument for 40 hours a week, then it would take you five years to get up to 10,000 hours. But probably you don't have 40 hours a week to practice because probably you have other commitments like school and or work that you have to do in the meantime. So let's say you practice 20 hours a week. Well, then you would get to 10,000 hours in 10 years. So that's probably a little bit more realistic. I mean, that's still two to three hours per day of practicing, which is a lot to fit into a busy schedule. But Still, you could reasonably get to 10,000 hours in 10 years, which is interesting because in Nashville, there's a saying that, yeah, if you're trying to make it in Nashville as a musician, it's a 10-year town. Like, it takes 10 years to get up to that point in Nashville where you're potentially having really great opportunities. But until then, it's like a really long process where you just have to grind and work really hard without much benefit. Um, so it's just interesting to me that this idea of Nashville's a 10-year town, you got to get up to 10,000 hours, which may or may not correspond to 10 years of effort. Like there's some consistency there and I'm feeling a lot better about that because it is something that I can control. It's something that I can choose to do if I want to be successful at something rather than like most of the rest of the book is talking about factors outside of your control that you have no power over changing. However, when you are researching things and finding out information, it is generally not considered a good idea to only get information from one source. So while I was reading the book Outliers, I also just did a quick Google search for the 10,000 hour rule. And one of the first results that came up is called The Great Practice Myth, debunking the 10,000 hour rule from a website called sixseconds.org. And... I just based on that title, I would think, oh, it's just some people that are like complaining about the 10,000 hour rule and they don't think it's legit. But um, actually, the article is way more in depth than that. And they cite several studies. Um, basically, there was one meta analysis from Chase Western Reserve University. A meta analysis means they took several studies and combined and consolidated all the results about this this topic of does the amount of time spent practicing music or sports or something does that lead it to tangible results you know is there an even correlation between the amount of time spent practicing and the results that you achieve in music for instance although you know it covered much more than just music in their their meta analysis but basically their findings were that overall the amount of time you spend practicing only accounts for 21% 
of your cumulative musical ability. Um, I don't know how they measured that because I don't have access to the actual study, but basically what that means is that out of the musicians that all of these smaller studies took, (sighs) the amount of time spent practicing didn't explain all the differences. Some musicians were just way better than others, even though they didn't spend as much time practicing. And so, sure, in general, spending more time practicing leads to better results, but the overall picture is much more complicated than that, and practice time only like increases your success by 21%, if that's a fair interpretation of the meta-analysis. So then, how do you explain the remaining 79% of musical performance? Like, is that because certain musicians were just practicing better and more diligently and that the time they spent practicing was more valuable or is it maybe they had like a better music teacher that guided them in a better direction or is it just simply that certain musicians are more gifted than others and that the amount of time they have to work at something to achieve the same results is less than their peers like what are these things that contribute to that So the unfortunate reality is that the 10,000-hour rule may just be totally false, or at least there may be a little bit of truth for it, but you can't apply it as a general rule to all musicians in all instances, right? And even Malcolm Gladwell himself, about 10 years after the book came out, he was asked, have you expanded your thinking on the 10,000-hour rule since the release of Outliers? And this was his response. I think a lot of people um, misunderstood a little bit what I was arguing and have overstated the argument. People have felt that 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 number is hard and fast. It's supposed to, it symbolizes this fact that the amount of time necessary to develop your innate abilities is probably longer than you think. So it's it's a metaphor for the extent of commitment that's necessary in cognitively complex fields. So that was from a video from the channel Heavy Chef called Malcolm Gladwell Demystifies 10,000 Hours Rule. And what he's saying is, look, everyone, you took me way too literally. You treated this as like a secret rule for success, where in reality, it's more of a metaphor. It's more of a rule of thumb. So even Malcolm Gladwell himself, who started all of this drama with the 10,000 hour rule, kind of walked back on it a little bit and's like, ah, I mean, it's an approximation. It's, it's a very very complicated discussion, but it really gets to this idea of nature versus nurture, of natural innate talent versus acquired skill. And it's something that's really personal to me as a musician in terms of how how we all fit into this world and how we compare ourselves to others. I think it's it's a really important thing to maybe not understand all of the nuances and how it works in the brain, but just to have like a general understanding of what is it that sets certain musicians apart from others. And that is something that we will be getting into next time. We are the 99% part two. How come certain musicians are better than others and what can you do about it and what can't you do about it? What do you need to just accept 
and what do you need to do in order to grow. So thank you so much for listening to this podcast episode. These these ones where we're doing research takes way more time for me in terms of the research and the preparation and the editing, but I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was worth it. Uh, next week will not be the second part in this series, but it will be an interview with Lauren and Andrew from Triple Threat Music Supervision about their work clearing the music for a feature-length film. I think it's a really fascinating project that they did. I had a really great conversation with them about it. Um, So be looking forward to that next week. And then after that, we'll be off for Christmas. But then the following week on New Year's, then finally there will be We Are the 99% Part 2. So look forward to that thank you so much. What do I see? I see my lava lamp is not turned on. I see my microphone dust cover, which is lying on the little um, stand shelf thing. Um, And I see the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, which is a really tough read. Um, But yeah, that's what I see. Thank you so much. And until next time.